Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Okay, so we're continuing in the book of Numbers today uh, with the portion is not so. And what I wanted to start out, the, the first question I was going to ask today is, how many of you know today that God loves you? <laughs> you know, and it's a simple question, right? And when I ask the question, you can think, okay, well, h- how did you perceive that? Did you perceive it as God loves me? Or did you perceive it as God loves us? Or both, right? Because the reality is that he loves each individual and he loves the collective body. And, and so it's important to understand that how his love extends in all these different levels. And the first thing we're going to start out looking at today is the Birchat Kohanim, which is the ironic blessing. It comes a little bit later in the portion. Um, but within the blessing, God is instructing the children of Aaron how they are to place God's name upon the children of Israel. So let's, let's look at number six, starting in verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Now, when you, when you look at this verse, you see that God spoke to Aaron and his sons, or told Moses to speak to them, and saying, this is how you shall bless Israel, and you shall say to them, right? And then it goes on, and you can't see this in, in the English, but in the Hebrew, the blessings and the placing of God's name upon the children of Israel is on an individual basis. Okay, so... You know, if we were to say, uh, it's, it's the you versus the y'all. Okay. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Okay. So each time that's the singular you. Okay. But, and then verse 27 says, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Right. So within this, God is blessing the entire body, all of the children of Israel, but he's specifically also blessing the individual, right? So this is a personal personal encounter and a collective encounter. And within the blessing, there's, there's three parts, right? We had the Lord bless you and keep you. And this part of it, uh, the word bless is understood to prosper or to increase, okay? to multiply, um, and then to keep is to watch over and to guard, to protect, right? So the Lord is saying that he is going to multiply you, prosper you, and he's going to watch over you and protect you. Now, when we think about this from the aspect of God being a good father, 
Okay, this is something we need to back up, okay, and think about this from the aspect of God being a good father or a parent who is loving, right? What do you do with your children? You desire to prosper them. You make a way for them to succeed. You give them many blessings and you guard over them and keep them. You show them compassion, right? So that's what the father's doing in this case. And then the next part says, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Okay, this part here is understood, well, it can be understood in in a couple ways, but one of the aspects is the idea of God causing his face to illuminate or shine upon you. Okay, that could be his face, that could be his face shining upon you, right? So you're receiving light and revelation, or it could be that God is actually causing his face to lighten up when he looks upon you. Okay, so may his face illuminate, may he, may his face brighten as he looks upon you and be gracious to you. Okay, and what's that grace? That grace is this unmerited, unconditional love. So may when he look upon you, may he delight and have joy in you, his face be radiant and just love for who you are. And then the third is the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Okay, there's a few different aspects on this. Um, there's the idea of God suppressing his anger, relenting, being patient, right? When someone is, has veered from the way and they've, they've gone astray, that God would still lift his countenance to them and say, I'm going to meet you where you are and seek to bring restoration and reconciliation such that he can pour out his peace upon his children. And so in this, you have the compassion of God demonstrated in how he's caring for his children, building them up for a purpose. And then you can see how he's showing unconditional love and grace as he's just delighting in his child because it's his child. And then the last thing is saying, even when there's been a break, God is going to seek that restoration and bring about peace, give shalom, And he does it not because we deserve it, but for his name's sake. Right now, think about this. When I read in the scriptures over and over, you see how God says, I'm going to move and I'm going to act and I'm going to bring about the redemption and the restoration. I'm going to move for my name's sake. Right? Not that you've earned it because you're a stiff-necked people. (laughs) Right? But he says he's going to move for his name's sake. And there's, there's an aspect of that where I see that he is doing this such that his name isn't profaned, right? He's fulfilling his promises. He's bringing his children back. He's saying, I'm going to do what I promised that I would do. I'm going to uphold my word to the patriarchs. But then there's another element to it. For his name's sake, I think really is just his utter love for his children, even when they've strayed for his name's sake, for his own uh, restoration, if you will. Not that he is lacking or broken in any way, but his desire is to be with his children, to have the reconciliation, to walk among them in the garden again, to see the full restoration. I think for his name's sake, too, is for his own delight in having his children close to him. And so he extends that grace 
such that his name might be honored and such that he might have the relationship he intended from the beginning. And so in each of these components of the blessing, you have, you see a loving father who is intent on seeing good for his children. And on the way here, uh, the song, the song was in my head and it was, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all and he has compassion on all that he has made. This is from Psalm 103. And you can find it other places too. But the scriptures speak of, of his faithfulness, right? And I, hark, I think back to a couple of weeks ago when we were reading the, admoni- the admonitions in Leviticus 26. And God was warning the children of Israel of what would happen to them if they were to stray from his ways and his word and how he would, he would judge them. And then if they still wouldn't repent, then he would send greater judgment and keep going, just always calling them to repent, but that ultimately exile was going to come. But then in Leviticus 26, verses 44 through 45, God speaks of when the children of Israel are in exile and even after all these calamities come on them, that he is not going to forget them. Let me just jump to this real quickly. Because a few weeks ago, I was like, oh, I wish I had mentioned that. And now I'm going to mention it. But he's speaking about remembering his covenant, even in the midst of the exile. And he speaks of how they had rejected his decrees. And he says, but despite all this, while they will be in the land of their enemies, I will not have been revolted by them, nor will I have rejected them to obliterate them, to annul my covenant with them. For I am the Lord, their God. I will remember for them the covenant of the ancients, those whom I have taken out of the land of Egypt before the eyes of the nations to be God unto them. I am the Lord. Right? So he... That was Leviticus 26, verses 44 through 45. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he, never, he never gives up. His desire is always to give that shalom and bring that restoration. So, you know, when we conclude our services and we pronounce the, the blessing over you, Just receive it as a father pouring out his love on you with all his intention of raising him, raising you up to be who he's called you to be, of loving you because you are his. And then saying, I will go to the ends of the earth to bring you back to me so that I can give you shalom and have that relationship. So God loves all of his children collectively and individually. Each one of us matters in his eyes. Each one matters in his eyes. Now, if we look at where we've been over the past several months, right? We went through the book of Leviticus and we saw how God revealed the way in which he was going to give a way for us to draw near to him as he has, as he is drawing near with his presence in the tabernacle and giving his children a way to draw near to him and assigning a priesthood who would serve as representatives of God to man and of man to God, a a people who were set apart for that ministry. And then we come into the book of Numbers, right? And in the book of Numbers, the first thing that God starts out talking about is how uh, the children of Israel to encamp 
around the tabernacle, to have him be the center of their lives and everything that they do. And last week's portion concluded with uh, the counting, the beginning of the counting of the Levites. Interestingly, it didn't finish counting the Levites and then break. Instead, they stopped after counting uh, Kohath and his children. Okay, so we pick up this week in Numbers 7, verse 1. On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, heads of their father's houses, who were the chiefs of the tribes, who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs and for each one an ox. They brought them before the tabernacle. Then the Lord said to Moses, Accept these from them, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. So the the leaders of each of the twelve tribes came together. They brought six wagons and twelve oxen and brought them as gifts uh, to be used in the service of the tabernacle. And God said, Yes, Moses, take them and assign them according to the need. And then we pick back up in, in verse 10. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offering before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, They shall offer their offerings, one chief each day, for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering on the first day was Nachshon, the son of Aminadav, of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering, one golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nachshon, the son of Aminadav. On the second day, Nathanael, the son of Zuar, the chief of Issachar, made an offering. He offered for his offering one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels. Have you heard this before? Did we, did we just read the same offering given from the tribe of Judah? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to continue on through the other 10 tribes, but they all brought the same thing. Everything was the same. Now, We've spoken about this a few times before, about how no word is wasted in the Torah, right? Every word had meaning and significance. But yet, you see almost 12 identical passages. I counted up the, the words that were identical in between, like, the, this person to, you know, re, renaming them. It was like 55 words per time. Okay, that's over 600 words that could have been said in 50, Right? So if nothing is wasted in the Torah, then what is it that God was wanting us to see in repeating this 12 times? Because he could have just said, here's the total of what was brought, which actually he did. (laughs) If we jump forward from verse, you know, 12 to verse uh, 84, we'll see the summary, right? 
And he says, this was the dedication offering for the altar on the day when it was anointed from the chiefs of Israel, 12 silver plates, 12 silver basins, 12 golden dishes, each plate weighing 130 shekels, and so forth. So he gave the summary too. Would have been a lot more efficient. I mean, think, I mean, parchment back then was, you know, the hide for the Torah that wasn't cheap, the, the time to write all, you know, there's a lot of effort that went into this. But God said, I want it all there. And not only that, back up, right? Back in, in verse 10, the scripture says, the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offerings before the altar. So all 12 brought all of this together to, to give it as one. But then God said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. So they tried to bring it in unity, but God said, no, I want each one brought distinctly and individually. Which is interesting, because when they brought the oxen and the wagons, he said, yes, receive it, that's great. We have the collective gift. And now this one, they're trying to bring it collective. They're not seeking a name for themselves. They're not seeking recognition above their brothers or different from their brothers. They're seeking one goal, which is to honor you and to build up your tabernacle, your dwelling presence on the earth. But you say, wait a second. No, I want each one to come and bring their gift independently. That's interesting. Because he cared about the unique contribution of each tribe even though ultimately their contribution in building the tabernacle and supporting the tabernacle was the same. But there was a spiritual essence within it that went beyond just the physical provision that was being given by the tribes. And according to the Midrash, though the offerings were identical, each alluded to the special mission of each tribe so that each was unique in its spiritual essence. And within that, um, the understanding of the sages is that even though they ended up at the same number of everything, their reasoning behind each item they were giving was different. So, and, and that's actually detailed uh, in the Midrash, uh, but that would be for study at a different time. But the, the thing about that, each tribe with its own unique calling, yet coming together as one body, gives gives according to how God has equipped them, how he's allowed them to see, how he's allowed them to understand and perceive his purposes, but yet then he brings it all together such that all receive distinct honor and all contribute according to how he has blessed them to operate, right? And, and this is a, a quote that I read that I thought was really good. The leaders of the tribes brought both their inner desires and their tribal missions to the joint national goal of inaugurating the tabernacle. And in this way, all the tribes were combined into a spiritual and physical spectrum, a combination of spiritual and temporal potential and attainment in the combined service of the national destiny. That's a neat image to think of, right? They, though they were unified as one nation, they did not lose their individual or tribal identity and purpose. They continued to operate in that, not seeking their own gain, but the gain of the national destiny. Okay. And so a question kind of comes up of, well, how could they do that? You know, 
How is it that they could operate in such a selfless way? Right? And I think it, a lot of it has to do with a firm foundation that they had been built upon. Right? Now, granted, I mean, they, they had been in Egypt, right? But let's go back to their beginnings with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? And Abraham learning from Noah and from Shem, right? And from learning the ways of God and training up his children to walk in the ways of the Lord. So even if they had strayed from the way at one point in time, there was still a firm foundation that they could return to, right? It was not all was lost. So this ability to just seek to serve God and honor him and love him came, I think, from a foundation that had been placed in them long ago and passed on in their generations. Now within, you know, we we speak often about the importance of passing on our faith from generation to generation and wanting to see our children walk in the footsteps that we're walking in, right? Many of us are are pioneers, uh, first generation of going back to Torah and understanding uh, Yeshua from his Jewish perspective and understanding that the Torah is good. Um, but even so, you know, those of us who were raised in, in Christian families, we were shown the love of God, the love of Yeshua, and we were, and a firm foundation was built underneath us in that. And then we come and we understand more of the foundation and see foundations repaired and stand on that. And a key thing of the, of the teaching of Yeshua was service and humility, not seeking recognition for our works, uh, not seeking to be glorified by man, but to receive honor from God for our faithful service to him. And there's an importance of the individual within, within this aspect of serving God, but our focus doesn't become fixated on the individual. It's recognizing the importance of the individual, but also recognizing the importance of the kingdom and the national goals, right? Our society, on the other hand, and the culture around us is focused really on the individual, right? Um, there's often things stated about, well, uh, live your truth, speak your truth. Um, it's about your fulfillment, your feelings, your safe space, you know, and everyone needs to respect me, respect me, respect me. It's, it's counter to the ways of God and what he has called us to be. The truth they say they live by, right? Their truth is no truth at all, but rather feelings and opinions, right? The truth that we're to live on and to stand on is found in the word of God and in the person of Yeshua, right? We're to be grounded in the truth defined by God and to have our lives built on that firm foundation. And then from that place, we recognize our unique giftings and abilities. We recognize our unique individual value as children of God, loved by Him. And then collectively we say, let's come arm in arm, let's walk together, let's build each other up such that the community and the kingdom can grow and abound. Now, 
Now, speaking of you know the work that we do and not seeking glory for ourselves, I, I came across uh, something from a, a long time ago that I had written down, and it was about the Temple Mount and the courses of the stones. If you've ever seen the the Kotel or the the prayer wall there in Jerusalem, you know there's massive stones, right? And these stones, most of, well, what you see today is a combination of multiple periods of time of the walls being built up. But the first seven rows, or they're called courses of stones, are from the time of Herod. And they're these massive stones that uh, they, they have a, a relief on the front of them, okay? So they're not just smooth stone. Around the edges, there's a decorative border that has been etched out such that the, the, it's smooth and the face of it kind of stands out a little bit and is rough. So those are Herodian stones. There's seven courses that you can view of that today. And below ground, there are 17 courses. Okay. Now, yeah, there's 17 courses below that you can't see because they've been buried. Some of those were buried, you know, with the destruction of, of the, of the temple and the stones being thrown down such that the, the ground raised up. Um, but I don't know that all 17 were ever visible. And the reason why I say that is because whenever you're going to build a large structure, you don't just start building on top of the ground because it's unstable, right? And you're going to get shifting. You're going to get movement. You're going to get sinking. What you do is you dig down until you get to bedrock, until you get to a good foundation, and then you begin to build upon it. And so... You know, so maybe a course or two. I don't. I don't know. Something was underground. I'm going to assume. At least that's that's what I've read. But again, I don't know. Well, often they're five feet tall. Yeah, I mean, you can if you see pictures of people praying at the wall. I mean, the first course is like up to their chest. Um, there's one that's underground that is so massive. It's it's, uh, it makes, makes people wonder about how did they get this here? How did they do this so precisely, right? Because everything was cut off site and then brought and laid into place. Okay, so these were great craftsmanship. Now, the thing is, what they found is that at every course below, all of them have that same decorative uh, thing around the edges. Okay, but if there were some that were underground, then people were actually working to make something beautiful that would be buried and never seen. Does that make sense? But yet they still worked with the same craftsmanship because they knew that they were building up the temple, right? The place on which God's presence would rest. And so they did their work well, even though the beauty of it may not be seen. And that's part of of what we're to do, right? When we get to the point where we're tired, Ben, you mentioned it earlier today, tired and needed refreshment. You know, how many times do we say, what am I doing and what am I doing this for? Do I really see the benefit? You know, um, is it worth it? It's like, well, well, it depends. What are you building? You know, what are you putting your efforts toward? Are you... Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Are you seeking to build the kingdom? Are you working as unto the Lord? Well, then, yes, it's going to be worth it, right? 
There is a uh, part of where this thing came from that I read came from uh, a blog post that I had written that, that came about from a dream I had. And, and I hadn't planned to talk about it at this point, but let's go ahead. And in the dream, what happened is this woman approached a microphone and she began to sing an a cappella version of Agnes Day. Beautiful song, right? And she's at the microphone and she's seeing it, but there's no sound coming through the sound system. Okay? I mean, it's a microphone. Sound should be coming through the sound system. It's supposed to be. But she kept singing, singing her heart out, just the best that she could. And I sensed that in the background, someone was working, trying to get everything in place to where the sound system would work. And then, at one point, they got it working and the song began to come through the, the speakers. And it was just beautiful. And then the dream ended. Okay? And so what I, what I realized in that when I woke up was that this woman who was singing didn't, she wasn't so concerned that not many people could hear her that she wouldn't sing. She said, I'm going to sing, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability, and when God's ready, he's going to get these speakers working. Right? And that's the whole thing. You never know when God's going to be, begin to broadcast the music of your life. So you live in such a way as to proclaim the goodness of God and to show his kindness, his nature, and to realize that what you're doing goes beyond what you can see. It goes beyond what you can see. We want to look at the results. We want to say, there, that justifies all my efforts. But that's not what justifies your efforts. That's not what justifies your efforts. It's the God who sees, the God who has blessed you and kept you, who's had compassion on you and built you up to be who you are, it's the God who has said, I love you because of who you are. And then even when you've gone astray, even when you've fallen to the side, even when you get weary, I'm going to come right there and I'm going to lift my countenance upon you and I'm going to give you my peace. Right? And it's just so incredible to think of how he's with us every step of that way. He's with us every step of that way. And he sees value in each one of our contributions. Together we came, we came this morning and we sang and we all collectively were bringing praises before the Lord. It was beautiful. And I know it touched his heart. And you know what he did too on top of enjoying our praise and inhabiting our praise? He encountered each one of us individually. Some of us were crying. Some of us were joyful. But each one of us he was saying, okay, I want to, I want to touch you today. I want to touch you all today. And each one of you has a higher calling that God has given. The parts matter individually, but they also matter corporately, right? And I know that we all know these verses, especially when we look at 1 Corinthians 12 about the many parts of one body in Romans 12. But in Romans 12, uh, verse 4, let's just go there real quick. Um, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, the we, 
or though many are one body in Messiah and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Right? Let us use those gifts and appreciate the gifts in others and call them forth. And then together in unity, in complete spiritual unity that was established through Yeshua, we walk together. Right? We know of the scripture that says there's no longer uh, slave or free, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female. That's speaking of the spiritual reality that Yeshua has brought us in as children of God, that we are all saved the same way by the same grace. And then all made children of God brought into the Father through the Son, right? There's still distinction here in the physical, but then in the spiritual, there's this overcoming unity as well to where we, we have a spiritual and a physical reality of unity within the body. And we have to make room for that and walk in it. Um, you know, as, as we were, I skipped over all kinds of stuff I meant to say. That's okay, though. But if we, if we go back to the scriptures I haven't read, um, which uh, Numbers 421. <laughs> I just have to highlight this. Numbers 421. Okay, the very first verse that this portion opens up with is the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take a census of the sons of Gershon as well, according to their father's household, according to their families. Now, if you'll recall, <clears throat> of the children of Levi, you had the sons of Aaron, you had the sons of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Okay, well, the sons of Aaron, we know what they're doing. They're ministering in the temple, right? And then God broke up the service of the tabernacle or like during the movement of the tabernacle amongst the three families. To the Kohathites, in the last portion that we were reading, he gave the responsibility to carry the holy items that are inside the temple. And, and so after that instruction is given, that's where last week's portion ends. And then you've got this, this portion opens up with Gershon and Merari, and Gershon is carrying um, the, uh, the curtains and other effects the screen and, and such that goes onto the tabernacle. And then the sons of Merari are going to carry the, the wood planks and the other structural items. Now, Gershon is the oldest of these three brothers. But the children of Kohath, they're the ones who are carrying the holy items. Do you think that would cause a problem? Because it's like, well, how come I don't get to carry the holy items? Why don't I get the holy items? What's up with Kohath? He's younger than me, right? But, so we ended last week with Kohath getting that, and now this week it says, take a census of the sons of Gershon as well, as well. Like, don't forget, don't forget Gershon and Merari, right? But, but within this, when it says take a census, it's to lift up the heads. Lift up their heads, right? Last week we talked a little bit about the census and how the idea was for God to lift up the heads of the children of Israel when he took the count, accounting of them because each one mattered. Lift up their countenance, lift up their heads because they matter. Now tell Gershon too, no, you matter too. Lift up your head. You have an important calling within the handling of the tabernacle as well. Don't think lightly of the call that you've been given because it's of great honor also to carry these aspects, these items of the tabernacle. So again, within this, 
the call is not to have a one-upsmanship or I'm more exalted than you or I have a greater role to play than you. Each one has their part and without each one doing their part, the service could not be complete. How would it work if only the holy items were carried from one place to the other? There would be no place to put them, right? It took all of the family working together, doing their part according to what God had given to them to do and doing it well was going to be the thing that allowed the presence of God to move with the body as he carried them from one place to another, right? There's a few things that I felt like we should note in this. Um, you know, as, as I speak about this unity in various callings and about the fact that tension can arise within these aspects of, well, how come Aaron's sons, which actually in a couple of weeks we're going to read about Korah and we're going to see all about his rebellion, right? Um, but where there can be a feeling of, well, I'm a second-class citizen because I don't have the distinct honor that was given to so-and-so, right? So for the children of Israel, they could look and say, well, the Levites, they're really the special ones. You know, and feel like, well, why them? Why not me? Right? Those things can come up. And so often within the messianic movement, there's, there's questions that come up within, between, for Gentiles who've come to faith in Yeshua and saying, well, where do I fit in? If the, if the children of Israel, if the Jews are God's chosen people, then what does it mean or how does it look? Like, where do I fit in in this whole picture? And, it can be an identity crisis that comes up along the way. But the ultimate answer in it, I mean, and I'm not giving all the answers today to how to get through that, but, more, but the ultimate answer is that each group, though distinct, has their distinct purpose in God and assignment given in, in the restoration of all things and in part of bringing about the redemption. Very specifically, uh, like in, back in Deuteronomy 29, we won't read it, but the scripture talks about how the foreigners will play a big part in bringing about the redemption and, and calling for a return to Torah. Okay? Because a return to Torah is absolutely critical for the children of Israel in the restoration, and the foreigners will play a part in that. There's other parts where the nations are building up the walls of Jerusalem who are essentially bringing finances and gifts, being a shield and a guard unto Israel, right? Because Israel needs a guard when all the nations are rising up against her. Today, all the nations are rising up against Israel and anti-Semitism is going through the roof. Everybody loves a terrorist organization, but they can't stand a free people who are chosen by God, right? And... uh you know, unfortunately, uh, that hatred is only going to increase, right? So Israel needs allies who will stand with her. Who will do that, right? The nations will support, and well, I mean, the call of the Gentile believers is to stand with Israel, right? And to not just stand with Israel, but you're, you know, the Gentiles are actually a part of Israel brought in to the spiritual family of God and grafted into the commonwealth such that there is a spiritual union that is 
real, where there is no distinction, right, as children of God, but then there's also the physical distinction that is real. Israel. Well, anyway, is real. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I didn't mean to do that. But anyway, but, you know, it's the two coming together and being able to say, you know what? I understand the spiritual reality. And then I also recognize this physical calling. Now walk faithfully in it and see God work and move in that. Right. Because when we try to take up a, a responsibility that's not ours, what does it become but a heavy burden? Right. What does it really produce other than anguish, right? But God's desire is to bless us with many blessings that we can walk according to the way that he has made us to walk, created us to walk. I was drawn to uh, read Ephesians uh, yesterday, and I'm not going to read all of Ephesians here, so <laughs> thought I might get a few size of relief, but as I was reading it, you know, I was like, oh, why am I going to read this? And there's just a couple things that stood out to me in it. And so when Paul opens up, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Yeshua Messiah. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Yeshua, Messiah, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Messiah. Okay, so this is talking about God blessing us, right? And then he talks about the grace to extend to us. And he goes on and he talks about uh, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Yeshua to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in Yeshua. Okay, so in that short passage, I'm reading about God blessing us, extending grace to us, bringing us redemption and forgiveness, which is restoration and shalom. It's like, are, are, we, is, are we kind of seeing a pattern of blessing, like this compassion and blessing, this grace and love, and this reconciliation and this shalom given by God? And it continues on. There's, there's more that we won't read. Um, But then continuing in, in Ephesians 2.19, he says, So you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Yeshua, Messiah himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's kind of wrapping up what we're talking about here, right? Of being given this great love and grace and God taking of his, of his chosen people, Israel, and taking of the nations and making them into one, building them up on a firm foundation, which is Yeshua, our Messiah, into a house of God and a dwelling of his presence. All the pieces being individual stones fitted together for the common purpose of building up this national destiny and restoration that God is bringing about. So as we go, and as we carry out our walk of faith, placing God at the center of our lives, 
May we remember that it is Him that is working in us and through us to bring about what He prepared for us beforehand for us to walk in, such that His name's sake will be lifted up, will be magnified, that His name will be honored, and that He will have that restoration or that relationship with us restored in full. And we all get to take place, take part in it. We all have a key part in that. And our part is not insignificant. In his eyes, he says, each one of you, bring, bring your offering before me. You could all bring it together. Yes, and that's good. But wait, wait, no, I, I want to see you because I love you and I appreciate what you are doing and who you are. And my face is shining upon you. Amen. All right, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love and your kindness. We thank you for your goodness, the mercy that you've shown us. Thank you, Lord, that you are a good father. You are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And thank you for the goodness that you bestowed upon us. Thank you, Lord, for your compassion, your grace, and for your shalom. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us, you'd minister to us, encourage us, and strengthen us on the way. Lord, that we would... Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, that we might glorify you in our words, thoughts, and deeds, and that others might see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Lord, we bless you in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas.